from the National Society of Genetic Counselors, this is the NSGC podcast series. Exploring stories of leading voices and best practices in genetic counseling. Now to your hosts. Welcome to the NSGC podcast series. I'm your host, Naomi Wagner. In today's episode, we have three amazing speakers lined up to discuss the topic of infertility. Each speaker is interviewed by a different podcast subcommittee member. In our first interview, I will speak with Katie Hornberger. Katie is an assisted reproductive technology genetic counselor who has experienced recurrent pregnancy loss. You can't know how awful infertility or miscarriage is until you go through it yourself. Then for the second interview, podcast subcommittee member Rowan Awad will be interviewing Annabelle Adams. Annabelle is an award-winning communications and marketing professional. However, she's speaking to us today, not in her role as a communicator, but in her role as a patient and advocate. The best way to advocate is not at the employer level, it's at the state level. In the third interview, podcast subcommittee member Mary Pat Bland speaks with Melissa Strasberg. Melissa is a licensed, board-certified genetic counselor with more than 18 years of experience. She has provided clinical care in both academic and industry-based settings. She has both a personal and professional connection to infertility. My advice is don't give advice, give support. I'm excited to welcome our first guest. Hello, Katie. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. So could you start by telling us more about yourself and how you became involved in the assisted reproductive technology field? Yeah, of course. So I'm Katie Hornberger. I've been working in the assisted reproductive technology field for a little over five years now. And I think it was one of the areas I was always interested in along with pediatrics while I was in genetic counseling school, just because I've always loved being around children. So my first position ended up being at the Colorado Center for Reproductive Medicine and IVF clinic that's local to me. And I just, I loved the team and I loved getting to help build families. It felt like such meaningful work to me. And after some time, maybe three years or so there, I switched over to a PGT laboratory called iGenomics. And that was also fascinating to learn a little bit more about how how the PGT technology actually works. And now I'm at Seattle Sperm Bank. So now I'm working on, um, you know, donor sperm and donor gametes. So I've kind of seen all the different sides of reproductive medicine. And I actually left the field for six months or so in 2020. And that time made it really clear to me that I was meant to be in assisted reproductive technology. And I would probably always call it home. It just feels like really meaningful work to help people build their families and kind of complements my love for children getting to do that every day. Great. Thanks for that intro. I love to hear your enthusiasm for this field. And before we ask you more questions about yourself and your role, I think it would help our listeners if we can go over some general concepts as well. Mm-hmm. To start, I'm wondering if you could let us know what is infertility and how is it defined? So infertility is generally defined as not being able to get pregnant after 12 months of having regular unprotected sex or donor insemination. And it's thought that probably about 10 to 15% of couples are affected with infertility. And can you talk broadly about some of the options that are available for patients who are experiencing infertility? Yes. Luckily today, there are so many different types of treatment options. And of course, they'll depend on what your specific cause of infertility is. 
So you definitely want to have a comprehensive evaluation with a reproductive endocrinologist to know which treatments make sense in your specific case and which treatments would give you the best success rates. But generally starting with the lowest intervention, you have things like timed intercourse or timed intracervical insemination, which is insemination you can do from the comfort of your own house. Then kind of moving up a level, you've got intrauterine insemination or IUI. That is relatively inexpensive, but it is performed in a fertility clinic. And then moving one step further, you have in vitro fertilization, IVF. And to that, you could add on things like genetic testing for chromosome imbalances, or PGTA, pre-implantation genetic testing for aneuploidy, or genetic testing for specific genetic diseases that run in your family. And then there's probably many variations of each of those treatments where you could use something like a gamete donor, an egg or sperm donor, or a gestational carrier, depending on your specific needs or diagnoses. And my guess is that this might differ based on where you're located as well. We hear of people traveling to different countries sometimes for fertility treatments. Are you able to provide any background on differences in ART availability across various regions of the world? Yeah, I can talk a little bit about that. There are definitely certain countries with strict limitations on specific types of fertility treatment, whether that's types of genetic testing that you can utilize on embryos or being able to use a gestational carrier or a donor sperm or donor egg. But for patients here in the United States, really the main reason I hear about them traveling is due to the insane cost of treatment. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. fertility treatment, especially IVF is incredibly expensive in the United States. It is oftentimes much cheaper to get yourself to a different country, including flights and hotels and to pay for treatment uh, than what it is in the United States, especially since it's pretty rarely covered by insurance. So I have heard of a lot of my patients um, in the U.S. who decide to travel to different countries. And I will say, if you're thinking about doing that, you definitely want to shop around and make sure you find a center and a doctor who is, who's certified the way that they should be in their country and still plan to have somebody who can monitor you here in the U.S. So it's not as easy of a feat as you think it might be to travel somewhere for IVF because there's a lot of follow-up that you need to have done back, back in the States. Mm -hmm. And you've mentioned various healthcare providers too so far, and genetic counselors certainly are part of this ART journey as well. And you noted that you've worked in both in vitro fertilization or IVF clinics, as well as with pre-implantation genetic testing or PGT, as well as now with a sperm bank. Can you comment on the genetic counselor role in some of these different areas and how the genetic counselor might contribute to the care team? Definitely. I will have to say, I've really enjoyed all three jobs in, in art, but they are definitely different. And probably the biggest difference is that when I was at an IVF clinic, you have access to all of the patient's records in their history. You know, that patient really comprehensively. Um, so, you know, their family history, their personal medical history, their reproductive diagnoses, their age, all of their specific circumstances, whether they've had children or miscarriages. And you can just counsel them much more comprehensively and essentially you're responsible to do so because you have all of that information in front of you. When you work with a PGT laboratory or at a sperm bank, you really only have the information that that patient provides you on the phone when you're counseling them and maybe any details that the doctor who referred them there might have shared with you, but it's generally really limited. So the relationships you form with patients are a little bit different. They're not as long-term and 
in the laboratory setting or the sperm bank setting, you're focused a little bit more on the specific service or specific test you're provided and the limitations and benefits of it, rather than being able to see the patient as a bit more of a whole and working on that bigger multidisciplinary team, the way that you would at an IVF clinic. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like you might develop certain specialties too, depending on the setting. And I'm, I'm just kind of curious, do you feel like it was a lot of learning on the job or do you feel like increasingly genetic counselors are getting this training in their training programs or in their reproductive rotations if available? Sure. I went to school in 2013 to 2015, and we had one lecture about IVF and PGT And I I believe that was really it. So for me, it's been almost all on the job learning. And I understand as well, over time, you've had a personal experience with infertility. Would you be willing to share with our listeners more about your personal experiences? Yeah, definitely. That's one of the things that over the years of my own fertility challenges, I've become more and more comfortable sharing with others. And for me, uh, my partner and I, we have an almost five-year-old son who we conceive naturally and fortunately very easily. And about two years after he was born, when I was 28, we started trying for our second. And while it was really easy for us to conceive, our first attempt at that second child resulted in a miscarriage. And then over the next couple of years, I continued to have four more miscarriages. Being part of this field, I really thought it would be easier to get an answer, but I've seen three different reproductive endocrinologists, and unfortunately, we still don't have an explanation for our recurrent pregnancy loss, why those losses happened, and you know how likely it is for them to happen again. And unfortunately, I know that's really common. As I, I often remind my patients, we have a lot left to learn about infertility, And about 50% of RPL or recurrent pregnancy loss goes unexplained, even after a really extensive evaluation. So currently I'm really fortunate to say I'm pregnant right now. I'm feeling nervous about it. Very, very nervous about it, but I sure hope it sticks. And at the same time, uh, my husband and I were taking foster care classes and thinking about building our family through foster to adopt there's a lot of uncertainty. I mean, that's just how it is with all pregnancies, but especially when you go through pregnancy after a fertility challenge or after miscarriage, you just don't know what to expect. So we're, we're double dipping in a way right now and hoping for the best with the pregnancy, but kind of also interested in building our family through foster care too. Well, I wish you the best of luck and appreciate you sharing your journey and and the various ups, downs, and uncertainties you've experienced, because I'm sure we have many listeners who can relate to some or all of your experience. Um, And I imagine you may have had moments where you've related to your patients as well. Has this experience changed the way you counsel or discuss fertility and infertility with patients? Definitely. I could not have imagined the way that miscarriage. And I, I think I don't really think of myself as having infertility since we always are able to conceive, but similarly Mm -hmm. infertility and the struggle of wanting to conceive when you can't, how it affects you in every single way. It affects your self-confidence and how you feel about your body. It affects your relationship with your partner, including your sexual relationship. And it affects your relationships with friends and family Um, especially if you're in that age group where everyone's, or a lot of people are trying to get pregnant and having babies and you're hearing those announcements all the time, 
So as much as I thought about miscarriage and I imagined, oh, that would absolutely suck if that happened to me when I was my younger self before my miscarriage experience counseling patients, I thought it was something that, okay, you have one, you, you get over it and you move on, but it is really not like that. It's definitely really changed who I am as a person, um, just because it takes such a toll on you. And, and from either your personal, professional, or both experiences, are there any helpful things that you think people or genetic counselors can say to individuals who have experienced pregnancy loss, recurrent loss, or infertility? Mm-hmm. I think the most helpful thing to know is to not shy away from it. I imagine it can be hard to talk about miscarriage when you haven't gone through one yourself and you don't know exactly what it's like. But as somebody who's experienced them, it's so difficult when I have a friend or a family member who fails to ask me, you know, how I'm doing, if they know I just went through a miscarriage a week ago, or they know I went through one a month ago, or, you know, to have a close family member who knows I really want to build my family, but um, doesn't ask about what's going on with it. I think it's really helpful if you can reach out and say something like, if, if this is how you feel. I don't know what to say to you, but I want you to know I'm thinking about you and I'm so sorry you're going through this and I'm here anytime. And then as far as tangible things I've had, I feel so, so lucky compared to a lot of people who've gone through miscarriage to have so many friends that are genetic counselors who work in the field of fertility. So they understand it quite well. So I've gotten just such amazing support from the genetic counselor community, my friends. Um, They've done things like take my older son for me so I can have some time alone or some time with my husband or like recover from a DNC, bring over meals, order meals to my house, bring over pads. Um, if you're going through a miscarriage or a fresh mm-hmm. pair of pajamas or like big underwear for during that miscarriage, um, chocolate, you know, alcohol, because once you have a miscarriage, you can drink again. Um, there's just, there's lots of ways that you can tangibly support somebody. Um, but for me, it's really, when people can verbalize it or write me a card to say, Hey, I'm thinking of you. And it doesn't need to be anything long. Um, that's what feels the most supportive to me. Yeah. Thanks for those, those suggestions. Um, maybe not as much with genetic counselors who might be sometimes more familiar, but do you think there's aspects of recurrent loss and that experience that many people are just oblivious to and don't know about? I think the biggest thing that people are oblivious to, and one of the reasons I really want to kind of help spread the word about recurrent pregnancy loss is that a lot of people expect that they're going to get an answer for their miscarriage, whether it's just one or whether it's five or whether it's 10, and that just doesn't always happen. So I I sometimes, when I talk to patients, I'll compare it to other things like, like cancer, unfortunately, oftentimes you don't know why you got a cancer but you have that diagnosis and recurrent miscarriage and oftentimes infertility is unexplained. So just trying to think about conceptualize things differently. And as much as you want an answer, sometimes we just aren't at the place with science today where we're going to be able to give you an answer. And it doesn't mean that conceiving or having a live born baby isn't possible. It just means that we don't know. We don't know why that history happened to you. Yeah. And I know you mentioned wanting to spread the word. And I think there's genetic counselors out there as well, who need that reminder that there's not always an answer because we are always trying it so much to help patients find answers. So I appreciate you saying that 
and spreading the word both to our colleagues, but also others in the community. Um, I know you started a YouTube channel. Can you tell us more about that and how you're spreading the word through that channel? Yes. Thanks for bringing that up. So my YouTube channel is called Katie Lee CGC, and I've, I've actually branched it into two separate channels. One is Katie Lee CGC Talks Genetic Counseling, and the other is Katie Lee CGC Talks Miscarriage and Fertility. And the first is about genetic counseling awareness, applying to genetic counseling school. And it's just meant to be a kind of a safe place where people who are interested in learning more about genetic counseling can hear about the career from a friendly genetic counselor. But the second has been a way for me to make meaning of all of these miscarriages and the struggle that I've gone through over the years. And my goal is really to just share accurate information about miscarriage, about infertility, about the genetic testing options that you have as part of your fertility workup or part of your IVF cycle, and to do it in a really empathetic and sincere way. Because you guys, there are not enough YouTubers that are genetic counselors. We need more genetic counselors on YouTube. And so what has the response to your YouTube channel been like so far? I started three months ago, so I haven't been at it too long, but I just hit a 5,000 view mark. So that's a milestone for me. And honestly, it's still pretty small. I don't have a specific goal in mind and it's definitely not having a huge following. It's more just to have information out there for people who are struggling to find an answer. And it is kind of also free therapy for me to talk about my personal journey too. And as you mentioned, it's important to be sharing accurate information with people through venues like YouTube and social media. Do you think there is a lot of misinformation out there online for those experiencing pregnancy loss or infertility? Unfortunately, I do. And I think a lot of, a lot of genetic counselors can probably relate to the fact that you might have patients who are in support groups on Facebook. And there's loads of support groups for infertility, IVF, miscarriage. And I joined those once I started having recurrent miscarriage. And every single day, there are multiple posts that are completely factually inaccurate. Mm -hmm. And I, I just feel for the people in these groups so much because a lot of them are seeing reproductive endocrinologists or their OBs and their providers just don't have time to explain everything to them in detail. And these people don't know where to turn to get a, a good answer for their many, many questions that they rightfully have. There are a lot of just misconceptions out there about fertility and miscarriage in general. I think you highlighted too, that there's both a need for support and understanding and also information. Um, and hopefully your YouTube channel seems to be touching on, you know, both those things. So we, we very much appreciate you sharing your story here on the podcast, but also on the channel. We're getting towards the end of our interview here, but I wanted to make sure to ask you whether or not there's one or two key points that you feel that it's most important for the audience to understand about infertility or recurrent pregnancy loss, especially ones that maybe genetic counselors wouldn't think of or encounter in their training. I know all genetic counselors have a lot of empathy, but I think I've kind of touched on this already. It's just, you can't know how awful infertility or miscarriage is until you go through it yourself. And like I said earlier, I, I really, I knew it would never be a good experience, but I just didn't imagine how it would affect every aspect of my life. 
So I think that's one. And the other thing I wanted to share, kind of just thinking about genetic counselors and the fact that a lot of us are people in our reproductive age is thinking about how you announce pregnancies to your friends, family, or social media, and just being sensitive to the way that you announce. And if you know anybody who's going through fertility challenges or who's gone through miscarriages recently to think about sending them a text and giving them a little heads up to let them know you're thinking about them, but also you're planning to share this news because that can really go a long way and kind of save, save some of those people who are suffering from a little bit of grief to know you're thinking of them and for them not to be surprised by a big announcement at the workplace or on social media, if you are a close friend or at a family gathering. That's a great point. Thank you so much for sharing your perspective, your journey, your professional views. We really appreciated having you on the podcast today, Katie. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so grateful Katie could join us. And now over to Rowan and Annabelle. Annabelle, it's my absolute pleasure to welcome you to today's podcast episode. So you and I met last year in a clinical setting. And what you told me during that session was so compelling that I wanted to find a platform for you to share your opinions and perspective with others. So I'm really excited to have you today. And before I get into all of that, I wanted to just ask you if you can tell us more about yourself. Sure. So I'm Annabelle Adams. I'm 37 years old and I live in Long Beach, California. Professionally, I manage communications and marketing for the UCI School of Humanities. So I like to say that my job is storytelling. I believe storytelling is how we connect with others. And that's also why I'm so happy to be here with you because stories really matter. I love that. So what brought you to IVF? Well, it's been a little over two years since my husband and I began trying to conceive naturally. And we suffered recurrent pregnancy loss. And because of that, we found out that I carry a chromosome inversion on one of my fifth chromosomes. And the medically sound alternative to continuing to try to conceive naturally is to pursue IVF. Because with IVF, you can test the embryo for genetic abnormalities, including uh, abnormalities that would be a result of my inversion uh, before they're implanted. Um, so that choice would allow us to mitigate a lot of the physical harm and emotional harm that recurrent pregnancy loss causes. So I have completed two rounds of IVF now, and I do have one healthy embryo waiting for me. Congratulations. I, thank you. And I'm in the middle of my third round now. Excellent. It's always good news to have uh, these types of results. I know it's been such a long journey for you. Um, so tell us more, Annabelle, how it felt like to receive the news initially that you had this inversion. I really felt a number of conflicting emotions when I received the diagnosis. On the one hand, I felt a sense of relief because with a diagnosis, there is a potential solution. And so that felt hopeful. And I think too, for women who experience miscarriages or re recurrent miscarriages, there's always this fear in the back of your mind that there's something you did that might have caused the miscarriage. 
And so knowing that it was out of my control was comforting. Then there's the other side of the equation, which is that with a diagnosis of this kind, it's not an easy solution. And that's the challenge with genetics, right? It's not just that I can take a pill or make a lifestyle change and solve the problem. I use the analogy of the Greek tragic figure Sisyphus a lot to explain how it feels. And so I, I feel like Sisyphus whose hell is essentially having to push this boulder up a hill and it's strenuous and it's, it's just this horrible process. And he finally gets to the top and it's like, oh gosh, I, this is finally gonna be over. And then the boulder comes crashing back down over him. And when is that going to end? I hope there is an end for me, uh, but it has felt often like that type of hell of having to continually, continually go through something without a clear cut end and without knowing for sure whether there will be a positive outcome. I think it's really important what you just described, you know, the balance between um, not feeling that guilt that you are describing and understanding the cause of those losses. And at the same time, what do you do with this type of finding? Like you're describing, it's a never ending story. It keeps coming crashing down. Uh, with results that may not always be what you are hoping for. Uh, and so you and I has, had spoken in the past about, you know, just what infertility is in general and what it's like to be defined as somebody with infertility. So how do you feel your experience with having this inversion is different or similar as somebody defined under this infertility experience? Well, I think the, the most common way that infertility is defined is inability to conceive. And for women like me, our problem is not inability to conceive. Our problem is inability to conceive a, a healthy child. And again, it, it varies so much from person to person. Some women do get lucky and are able to have a healthy baby um, on their first try, or, you know, maybe after a miscarriage or two, and there's others who it really is like Sisyphus that they are just going through a continual nightmare of miscarriages. So in, in that sense, I think women like me really complicate what we think of as infertility, because the stakes are different. And that's important because the way we think about infertility and define infertility affects how medical practitioners define infertility and treat infertility. It affects how uh, we advocate for infertility coverage. And I think in some ways it's easy to be dismissed when people think of infertility as inability to conceive. I think there's a sense that there's no physical harm done if they do not cover IVF or if there is not a treatment uh, for women with infertility. But for women like me, we will have to undergo physical harm without IVF. And so I, my hope is that by bringing more women like me into conversations around infertility, we can kind of galvanize and challenge the stakes and really light a fire to include us in conversations and to have IVF coverage mandated by employers, which 
you know, right now it's really a state by state and employer by employer thing, which is unfortunate. So Annabelle, do you feel that your employer then sets differentiation between the definition of an employee experiencing infertility and somebody who isn't? Do they have criteria that they set? And then do they also determine coverage based on those criteria? The, the definition of infertility doesn't matter so much in the case of my employer because my employer doesn't offer any IVF coverage. They offer the bare minimum of what is required by California state law, which is some infertility coverage. So um, IUIs and diagnostic testing uh, are covered, but IVF is not. However, my husband's employer, let's say it's a Swedish headquartered DIY furniture store that everyone shops at, <laughs> they, they do offer a lifetime max of 15,000 IVF coverage, which is great. I do sometimes wonder when was that max set? As a European company, there companies tend to be a bit more progressive in IVF coverage. So I wonder, should that number be uh, adjusted for inflation? <laughs> because in Southern California, at least 15,000 isn't even enough to cover one round. I, I did notice in reading the, the paperwork of my, of my husband's insurance that infertility is defined as inability to conceive. Mm -hmm. And thankfully, they did not ask whether or not I was able to conceive uh, because I was able to use uh, the 15,000 coverage uh, for, for one of my cycles. But I think that that question helps us reinforce why these definitions are so important because mm -hmm they really can become a barrier uh, to some people. And really when we're considering definitions around healthcare, we should strive to be as inclusive as possible um, because that's the point of healthcare, right? We want to be able to positively impact and, and make accessible the care that people need. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it is problematic that the, the definitions can be quite limiting right now. And Annabelle, you also mentioned that these European companies, or at least the one that you're familiar with, uh, is more progressive in their coverage criteria. So, you know, we also hear about, let's say, maternity and paternity leave coverage and how long it is and how much more luxurious it is in Europe compared to the U.S. So what do you think are some of the core issues with the healthcare system here in the U.S., specifically in terms of coverage for IVF procedures and just PGT services altogether? That is such a big question, and I, I'm not sure I know enough, but I will tell you what I think just based on my limited scope of experience. There's a cultural value embedded in U.S. society that is very individualistic. We believe that individuals should uh, solve their own problems. Personal responsibility is a catchphrase that we throw around whenever there's an issue that would benefit from a structural solution. And I think that is such a hindrance to us creating solutions that really would help a majority of people. And so I think that that ties in perfectly to my situation, right? I've, I did try to advocate for uh, IVF coverage with my employer and was essentially brushed off because these things are really viewed as that's your problem. If you don't have the money to pay for it, that's your problem the end. Thank you so much for that perspective, Annabelle. 
I know that you have become an activist in this area, hoping that new legislation is introduced to help this cause. Tell us more about your activism. So first, I, I would say I, I consider myself activated uh, rather than an activist because I'm, I'm still very new to this and I'm a reluctant activist. I, I wish that I didn't have to advocate for my own healthcare. I wish that I could instead use that energy to navigate my healthcare issue, which is uh, substantial and has been you know, traumatic enough to, to deal with. So I, I think it's important to say that I, I wish I didn't have to be an advocate for myself. Nonetheless, um, I, I'm learning. I'm learning a lot about how to advocate myself and about what does and doesn't work by taking one step after the other. So my first step when I found out that IVF was the uh, medically sound next choice for me and then saw that there was no coverage for it from my employer, I did some research on how people can advocate for themselves for IVF coverage. So I, I looked into different case studies that could provide a framework for how to advocate with your employer for IVF coverage. And I saw that uh, a number of grad students had successfully advocated with their union to get $15,000 lifetime coverage for IVF. And they had so wonderfully created this website that had all of the letters they had used and they had started a, you know, an online fundraising campaign. And so I took notes as to the verbiage that they used and I modeled uh, my letter uh, off of theirs and, and also updated it with research. I know as a, a storyteller in my professional life that you have to, when trying to advocate and be persuasive, you have to use both facts and stories that's how you connect with someone and, and persuade them. So I, I, I put in some of the uh, story and emotion and as well as a lot of facts and scientific research. And unfortunately, it didn't go anywhere. One of the challenges of working for such a large system is that it is very bureaucratic and bureaucracies tend to uh, serve themselves rather than the employees. And so I, I really was passed around. I, I didn't get a response for, for two weeks. And then I was passed around to different groups. And I, I wasn't so naive as to expect that I would write this powerful letter. And all of a sudden, they would say, my gosh, we're, we're going to change our policies and, you know, just implement this change right away. But I was hoping bare minimum that I would get a response that acknowledged my situation and, and was compassionate to my situation and maybe uh, would have been provided with a platform to share my story, but I wasn't. And I am a very principled person. And so when I feel that something is wrong, I just have this inextinguishable fire that's lit in me. And so that fire is now burning right now and has remained burning. And so I've learned from, from the fact that I did not hear back uh, or get an adequate response that the best way to advocate is not at the employer level, level, it's at the state level because employers tend to take their cue from their state, from the state. And so that was a, a great lesson. And so in many ways, I, you know, you have to have these missteps to be able to know what is the appropriate next step. And so now that I know the appropriate next step is to advocate with my state, I have gotten involved with 
Resolve, which is the you know, US-wide uh, infertility association. And they uh, have a number of resources for people uh, who wanna advocate for IVF coverage, as well as for people who want to be really activated in terms of the legislation. And so I learned that uh, assembly member Buffy Wicks based out of Berkeley had introduced an assembly bill that would uh, revise the state law right now that mandates employers cover diagnostic testing and IUI testing for infertility. And it would revise it to include IVF. It would also make the language of infertility more inclusive of the LGBTQ community, uh, which you know we've, we've spoken about how inclusive language should be the, uh, the model, not the exception when it comes to healthcare policy. So learning that assembly uh, member Wicks had introduced this policy was really empowering to me because as a storyteller, I know that timeliness and having a news hook is everything to get my story out there. So now that this bill has been introduced, uh, it's a bit on hold until the summer. And at that point, I have planned an op-ed that I will be pitching to uh, local publications. My goal is the Los Angeles Times. Um, so I have this op-ed already written. I have a, a journalist mentor who's uh, weighing in to ensure that I this one chance that I get to get this op-ed published really uh, happens. And then um, I started a podcast uh, that I will use to help spotlight other women like me who are undergoing these challenges. I know how powerful stories are. And so I'm working with other women to compile their stories so that when this legislation is introduced in California, that we can really be so loud that you can't but help to hear us and so compelling that you connect with us and, and really that we challenge the way you think about infertility and hopefully, um, you know, our voices will help uh, pass this, this bill. So many listeners right now where this resonates with them probably feel like they want in on this movement. They would like to help in any way possible. Now, because of the nature of what I do as a genetic counselor in the PGTM world, I am very familiar with resolve.org and I'm familiar with this support group. But can you tell us more, whether it's healthcare professionals, other genetic counselors, or even the public listening to this, how can we help? Are there any action items or things that we can do to support you and other patients going through this? I think genetic counselors actually have such an incredible opportunity to leverage their voices um, in, in a way actually that it can be more powerful than my voice because genetic counselors have a level of expertise that warrants credibility with a public audience. You know, I'm just one person and, and I just have my experience, which is powerful and I'm, I'm not discounting that. But as a storyteller, I do this for a living and I know that expertise is instant credibility and that is a powerful way to amplify all of your patients' voices. You know, genetic counselors also have access to research and stats that us patients don't necessarily have easy access to. And I think particularly those of us who uh, have these uh, chromosomal structural rearrangements, uh, depending on which one we have, there may or may not be a lot of 
actually information easily accessible. As someone with an inversion, there actually isn't very much easily accessible out there. But genetic counselors do have access to this uh, information. And, you know, in addition to the the scientific research that they can bring to the table, they can bring to the table anecdotal information that is also powerful. They can talk about patients that they've had, the number of patients they've had, and how you know solutions are available and should be made accessible. And that's, I think, a very important to make, right? This, the scientific solutions exist, but if they're not accessible, then who are they serving? Right. So my suggestion would be, if you are a genetic counselor, write an op-ed. And if, gen- if genetic counselors want to learn more about writing op-eds, there are so many resources online. Just Google the op-ed project. Uh, it's a great nonprofit organization that offers workshops as well as some free training and resources online where you can just learn how to tell your story and get it published. Uh, there's also an advocacy day. Uh, this year it's on June 17. I'll be participating and, and that's where, you know, depending on your state, you'll be connected with other other people and you'll get to uh, meet with your legislators and, and tell them your story and hopefully, you know, uh, broaden their perspective on infertility, maybe even challenge what they think about infertility and give them a face because it is, it's so easy to brush things off when it's just kind of this obscure thing. But when you're looking into someone's eyes and they're explaining how they're suffering from recurrent miscarriage and the trauma and physical harm that they're facing, I think it's a lot harder to ignore. This is really helpful, Annabelle. It sounds like using our expertise and evidence-based knowledge and data gathering, we can leverage the voice of patients and then, like you're saying, contribute in advocacy work, open ed, and other services. And I'm curious, potentially others are curious as well. I, you know, I can, as a genetic counselor, provide you with a list of resources like we've talked about in the past, but I'm just curious to know out of everything that you've navigated and for anyone out there with a structural um, rearrangement who may be going through the same or s- similar situation as yours, other than resolve, what other resources were helpful to you? The most important resource that I found was a Facebook support group for people who have balanced translocations. I don't have a balanced translocation, but an inversion, you know, they both fall under the same umbrella of uh, structural uh, rearrangement. And that group has truly been a life source for me. Being able to connect with women and men around the world who are trying to have children and navigating these challenges it makes you feel like you're not alone. And that's so important because I had started to feel like somehow I was chosen to suffer, you know, to be diagnosed with something so rare. It, it's hard to not feel like somehow it's personal. And yet being in this group, I have actually within this group, I've, I now have very close friendships with about 10 other women and we have weekly Zoom conversations with each other. And I look into their faces and I mean, there's a lawyer and a teacher and a nurse. And these are strong women who are just so deserving of all the goodness you could wish on anyone. And yet they are also facing this horrible 
challenge. And so it just makes me actually hopeful because I feel like if these women are just so deserving of the best situations and they're facing this, I know that it's going to get better at some point. It's it's so heartening to see that now two of them are about to give birth to help healthy babies um, uh, through through IVF PGT tested embryos. Uh, two of them have now had children uh, naturally conceived that were healthy, and so it's just been the most heartening experience actually of my life. And I think with any challenge you face you have to see what you lose and what you gain. And I think in this situation, I've gained so much by connecting with these women. There's also the the scientific side of things. One of the challenges of having a a chromosomal structural rearrangement, as we've discussed before, is just there's just not a lot of information online. And I think genetic counselors are trying to straddle this fine line between giving enough information on a diagnosis and then not overwhelming a patient. Um, But many of us, I think, are so hungry for the science. We want to know everything. We want to know the probabilities. Um, Because I think when when you have a challenge like this and you are able to know as much as you can, it it actually allows you to feel empowered instead of feeling like something happened to you, you you feel like you have a firm grasp of it. So it was actually in this group that I I learned, you know, what breaks are. Like I didn't know that chromosomes have breaks and that those breaks can define really how early or late your your miscarriages are or whether you can actually carry a a baby to term that has severe uh, genetic uh, deficiencies. So it was a great scientific resource as well as a great emotional resource. So I I would recommend that anyone who has a a chromosomal structural rearrangement searches online for a support group. So based on all we've talked about today, is there a key point or two you feel it's most important for the audience to understand, especially one that GCs may not have encountered in their early training or early career? I, I really hope that GCs listening to this see how much power they have actually to shape how the public perceives infertility. And I hope they really feel empowered to to take that on on behalf of their patients because their their voices and their perspectives and their, their research and expertise is so valuable and their level of credibility is so important in navigating these situations. And I would really hope that they're advocating right alongside their patients. That's the picture I'd like to have in my mind that, you know, it's not just us patients who are out there with our megaphones and putting ourselves out there in these very vulnerable positions that there's those experts that are alongside us advocating because that will really add such value to the conversation um, and help challenge a lot of misinformation. What success looks like is that we have the technology available, not that it's going to take one round. (laughs) I love that. I absolutely love this. I think this is a great take-home message and I hope that there's going to be more participation. I have to ask, is there anything else you'd like to share that I didn't ask you about? Sometimes I like to think what IVF would be like if men 
had to do IVF. And I think that there would be uh, an IVF clinic embedded in 7-Elevens across the world and that men could just pop in and um, have a procedure. And also the, the needles would obviously be painless and, you know, there would be confetti and, you know, alcoholic beverages. It would be a completely different situation. But I think about when my, one of the nurses in my IVF clinic was teaching me how to uh, administer the, the manicure. And she says to me, these needles are known for being dull and you just really have to jab them in. And I'm thinking to myself, why hasn't anyone said fix the needles? Like <laughs> if they're known to be dull, why are you continuing to give us these dull needles? Why hasn't this, this been fixed? Women's pain, I think, is more accepted and acceptable. And we're not advocated uh, on behalf of as strongly as we would, I think, if, if infertility was seen as both a woman and man issue. And I think also uh, chromosomal structural rearrangements, because they do affect men and women, and women who suffer from recurrent mis miscarriages, it it's not necessarily because they carry the uh, issue. It could be their spouse. Absolutely. So I think that that can, again, reframe how we think of these issues, fix the needles, make IVF coverage more widely accessible, and really challenge that this is a women's issue. This is an everyone issue. If the audience wants to continue hearing from you, where should they follow you? I can be followed on Twitter at Annabelle M. Adams. You have no idea how having you here today has meant to me. I really, really appreciate your time with us, Annabelle, and I thank you so much for participating. Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing your perspective, Annabelle. Next up, Mary Pat and Melissa. Melissa, you've had your own fertility journey and you were willing to share it with us. And thank you so much for agreeing to speak with our audience. Oh, of course. Thank you. I'm wondering if we can start maybe by just having you tell us a little bit about your professional journey, if you've always practiced in reproductive genetics, if you've ever thought about switching. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, I started out like most genetic counselors with sort of a desire to kind of be in medicine, but have more of that human sort of psychology counseling kind of touch. So um, I had gone to undergrad, knew I didn't want to go to medical school. And then after graduating, I just explored different you know, avenues to kind of uh, satisfy those needs. I was working as a research assistant as a, at a hospital in Boston. And that's when I met my first genetic counselor and literally talked to her for like 20 minutes and was like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. Um, and went from there, went to the Harvard Med School Library because I'm very old. Um, so <laughs> took out the only book on genetic counselor, which was the Diane Baker book, read it from like cover to cover in like a day or two and was like, yep, this is what I'm going to do. And just started applying. My experience up to that point was only in cancer. That was, I was working in a cancer clinic. So my goals were, yep, going to become a cancer genetic counselor. When I went to interview in Houston, right, at, um, when I was in grad school, I went to MD Anderson to interview, but also had an opportunity to interview for a prenatal position at UT Houston and thought, oh God, I'm just, I'll interview, but I don't want to do prenatal. And I, again, just absolutely fell in love. I fell in love with the clinic and the people there, and it was part of a program. And so, yeah, totally shift perspective and went from <laughs> one kind of specialty and then have never left reproductive. I currently also have started doing some ocular genetics. So I now do other things, uh, but for probably about the last 15 to 20 years, yeah, all reproductive. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about your personal experience with infertility and maybe looping back to that first question, if you've ever thought about shifting what you do based on that or not so much. 
So uh, my infertility is explained, which I know that a lot of uh, individuals have unexplained infertility, which in itself is just a hurdle trying to understand that. For me, I uh, was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis uh, just shortly after I actually met my husband. We were recently engaged and the plan was to get married and all of that um, and was diagnosed at that point and unfortunately had some really big setbacks, uh, which made me sort of reevaluate my care and what was going on. And so I had the opportunity to be in a research trial at John Hopkins using chemotherapy. It was discussed that there was a possibility of infertility with that form of chemotherapy, but was thought to be minimal. And uh, at that time, the option of egg freezing and things just, it wasn't there yet. And so it really wasn't something that I was able to do, especially within the timing. So I had already sort of dealt with sort of like a chronic health condition in the healthcare space and sort of dealt with some of those challenges. So it was interesting when um, and I had dealt with those things through therapy. So when the infertility came up, it was something that I already sort of encountered a little bit of having that transference issues with patients and things like that. So I think I may have been a little bit more prepared for it. And interestingly, my first cycle, I was thinking back to this, my first cycle, I didn't have any problems like seeing patients and things like that, because in my head, I thought, oh, I'm going to do an IVF cycle. I'm going to get a baby out of this and everything's going to be fine. It wasn't until that failed and I had to start thinking about a second cycle that it really led me to think like, I can't do this anymore. I found myself just becoming less and less of that compassionate, empathetic counselor that I was. I was <laughs> more dismissive of things. I got more upset, you know, I, um, and I just wasn't in the right mind space for myself or for my patients. So I did, I had to take a step away mm -hmm. when I realized it was impacting the care I was giving. Um, and so I did, I stepped away for a while worked in a laboratory, you know, did some contract work just because I was like, I need, I need out. Um, <laughs> and then really quickly realized I can't do this. I can't work in a, like I, and I do work in a lab now, but I'm still in a patient facing role because I just right. feel that my role is helping patients. And so I got myself therapy again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that is one consistent thing through my story is always have a good therapist. Um, so I did the work, I kind of worked on myself and, um, I then going back into reproductive health really wanted to focus on infertility and really wanting to let people know that, yeah, there's, yeah, there's people out there that are going to support you that are going through it with you, all of those things. I am wondering, it sounds like one of the things in terms of counseling patients, when you're going through this fertility process that may have been surprising in retrospect is that the first cycle didn't really impact you so much. It wasn't, it didn't affect your work, but at a later point, maybe over time is what got more challenging. Yeah. And why you had it's to step away. Okay. It's exhausting, right? right? I mean, just going through IVF cycles is exhausting. I and mean, then not even just any fertility treatment that, you know, every month is like this whoo, rush of emotions and then another rush, of, you know, it's like a, mm -hmm. up and a down. It's like every single day is a roller coaster and it consumes you. Um, and it becomes like your main focus is this drive and it just gets into other places in your life that, right, you're trying to keep it out of. And that's not, it's impossible. We're human. It may not be fertility, but all of us are going to have times when our professional and our personal are going to interact, right? Right. We all right. learn about transference and it's like, oh yeah, this may happen, but like, no, it will happen. Like, mm -hmm. this is something that you always have to be on guard for because it will happen. You will have a family member, unfortunately, who is diagnosed with something and you'll meet a person in your clinic who has that. And suddenly you'll, you'll, it'll catch your breath. Right. Sure. And that's okay. Right. But you have to have the self-awareness to realize it's happening. It's normal. It's okay. Right. <laughs> but you have to own it. Right. Trying to be like, Oh no, no, that 
it's not going to bother me. I'm going to keep it separate. No, it's, it's gonna. So if you were to summarize, you know, again, thinking about those healthy boundaries, like you said, because inevitably all of us will have a patient that triggers something in us, would you say being open to counseling or realizing that that's a normal thing and adjusting as need be are some of the tools that you used or would recommend that counselors use if they're finding that they encounter that? Sure. Yeah. And I was very fortunate um, to have a really supportive group of other counselors that I worked with. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't share everything about everything, right? There are certain parts that I will never share with people, right? And especially in the time that I was going through it, I didn't share a lot. Whereas now I will tell you, I'm an open book, right? But it's because I've dealt with it. I've sort of processed all of that. Um, So I did have, through both my MS diagnosis, through the fertility issues, I had very supportive co-counselors, nurses in my clinic, and there were specific people that sort of knew more about what was going on. And when I had those moments and I was like, I I can't see this patient, or can you take over this one? Can you, it was never questioned. It was always like, oh, of course we can. Yes, of course. So rely on your teammates. You may not have to tell them everything, but enough that they understand you're going through a hard time and that's their support is appreciated and it will come back to them when they're going through a hard time. Right. And it always does having people around you that may not necessarily be getting you through the crisis, but are there to support you when you just can't get through your day. Yeah. What was helpful. um, So having supportive colleagues, knowing when to pass off cases, anything else, maybe any other resources you encountered websites, groups, or things that people said or did that were particularly Mm. helpful? Yeah, it's interesting because for a lot of people, they rely on family members, right? They talk to their mom, they talk to their siblings. I didn't have that. I did not have a close relationship with my family. My mother actually, I hope she doesn't listen to this, but she was like, didn't want me to go through IVF because she felt it was going to be hard on her to see me go through failing, never encouraging, never like, yes, I support. And so I had to shut her out. Because I, I was like, I need the people around me to be positive, to be supportive, and to be encouraging. And so you may find that there are people that you just can't, you can't let in anymore because they're going to bring you down. And that's okay, right? You have to take care of yourself. And you can reestablish those relationships hopefully later on. But at the time, you may have to say, you know what? Your help isn't appreciated right now. Something that a lot of people I don't think realize is by offering advice in a way you're questioning what that person has already Mm -hmm. done. And that would drive me crazy because I pride myself on being a really smart person, right? Which is Mm -hmm. also part of our downfall because smart people can usually read a book and get through it, right? No, you can't, no, that's not gonna work here. So when people would say to me, well, have you tried this? Oh, well, did you do yoga? Well, for both the MS and the info, I'm like, really? You don't think I've tried, you really don't think I've tried everything. So though people think they're doing a service to you, it's hurtful. It can be very hurtful. And so my advice is don't give advice, give support. So if someone comes to you and say, I'm struggling, you know, I'm going through infertility, that must be really hard for you. Tell me more about it. Done. Not, Mm -hmm. oh, my cousin's sister's nephew went through it and went and saw this guy and he was amazing. Like, no, no, that's not helpful to me. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So um, that is one of my biggest takeaways. And I find that I change my counseling that way. I do not say, I know what you're feeling. I know exactly what you're talking about. Oh, my sister went through that. Oh, I've had other patients. No, you don't. You will never know what another person truly goes through. So ask them, tell me Mm -hmm. what it's like for you right now. I'm here to talk and don't ask, can I do this? 
because the answer is always going to say no. We are right. We are not those types of people who want to accept help easily. So mm -hmm. though hundreds of people said, mm -hmm. what can I do for you? I never had an answer for them because I didn't know. Um, In retrospect, is there anything that you could think of just so besides being a listening ear? I think that boundary of when to ask and when not to ask, especially thinking about a professional setting is always tricky. I mean, I think it's always best to start with questions, right? That's, we're trained to do that. Ask questions, don't make assumptions. I also think something that was very helpful to me and what I've, I would love if there was a way to do this. Um, I think there needs to be a buddy system. So mm. when I was diagnosed with MS, and I know I keep bringing that up, but a coworker of mine knew someone who had MS and had had for several years and had really managed the healthcare system and found the right specialists and things like that. And she said, I'm just going to have you talk to her. So you have this perspective of someone who's lived life for a while and is doing amazingly well. So you're not just seeing this negativity. Mm -hmm. I talked to that woman in the grocery, she called me on my cell phone. I was in the grocery store. I talked to her for an hour in the corner of a grocery store. And that conversation was more impactful than literally any other conversation I had wow. because she just said, you're going to do this. Here's how you're going to do it. If you need, you don't see these people anymore. You see specialists. Here's the ones I see. You're welcome to use them, but I've already fully vetted them. Like, and she just said, tell your story. You want hundreds of people pulling for you, not just two, whether you're religious or not, right? Wouldn't mm -hmm. you love to think there are people out there thinking about me and sending me positive thoughts? Like what an amazing feeling. She's like, you're not going to be in a wheelchair. You're and it was just very black and white. This is going to be okay. It's going to be a struggle, but I got through it. And so will you, I feel like we need to do the same thing. Every patient that goes into a fertility clinic should get buddied up with someone who's already been through the process. Because there are so many nuances, like even things with insurance coverage, what pharmacy to use, you're never going to get the real answers from the people in the clinic, you're going to get it from the patients. So in my clinic, I tried to start that like, can you start every woman that has been through this is more than happy to talk to someone who's about to go through it, mm -hmm. right? It's mm -hmm. just you don't want someone else to go through what you had to go through there yeah offer me all the advice you have you've been through it right <laughs> so uh find a champion right find somebody who you do feel okay opening up and talking about and maybe does have some experience which I know is hard to do <laughs> do you find for yourself just based on that experience that you tend to be particularly thoughtful or active about connecting patients who may find they're having a child with a particular condition with other people or just, just that a little bit yeah. more of a push than someone without that perspective. Yeah. And I don't think I ever really connected the two, but definitely it's something mm -hmm. that I've always been sort of obsessed with, like making relationships with patients and asking them like in the future, can I reach out to you? And I do, for example, one of the things that I'm talking about often is PGT results, right. And mosaicism. And I have a whole collection of moms now who have had successful mosaic transfers and unsuccessful mosaic mm -hmm. transfers. And mm -hmm. all of them are like, send anyone our way. We'll kind of walk them through like our thought process. And so I do that quite often, um, <laughs> even before when I was in clinic, right. I was at Baylor. So yeah, same thing. I was always connecting moms who had similar prenatal diagnoses or pediatric diagnoses. And so I don't think I ever connected those two things. Like mm -hmm. I'm going to get you a buddy. I'm going to get you a champion, but yeah, I think that's actually what I'm doing. Was there anything that, um, in terms of the cost of fertility that mm -hmm. you were surprised about? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I had, I was working for a medical school, right? I had quote unquote coverage, but unfortunately because of the amount of medication I needed, it was like not even a dent. We took out loans. So yeah, we, we are still paying off loans for one of our cycles. My husband is from the UK. So we actually got medication sent to us 
from UK pharmacies because they're a fraction of the price. Mm-hmm. Um, but no US provider will okay that because they can't guarantee, right? So sure. I'm not telling people to go that route, but these are the extremes that you'll go to because it's like, we had this desire to start a family and that was the only way we thought it was going to happen. And so, yeah. And I think for me, it's been even more frustrating because um, it's been unsuccessful, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm still paying bills. I don't have a child. So I think if I had a two-year-old in front of me and I was paying that those bills, right. I'd be like, Oh yeah, he's pretty great. Right. (laughs) He's worth those monthly payments. But I think it's, it's been really hard to wrap my head around this continuing debt and then no benefit of that debt. Right. If I go into debt, I want it's because I bought some great stuff for myself. Right. Like, so, so unfortunately the financial impact has been huge for us. Uh, We're still sort of digging ourselves out of it. And that was a worry. Like I said, if this works, how are we going to actually raise a child now? Right. So sure, sure. we know that there are families that are putting themselves into bankruptcy, then having a child and then having to make financial decisions about raising that child with limited funds. It's just a terrible cycle. Thinking about just kind of all the lessons that you've learned um, yeah. along the way and how they've maybe changed or influenced your counseling. Are there any key points maybe that we haven't covered so far that you feel like you didn't get in grad school that would have been helpful to know or that that you've incorporated into your counseling or early students um, just out may not have experienced so far, just about fertility in general, that kind of some key take-homes? Self-advocate, right? No one is going to advocate as hard as you and if you're doing this with a partner, right? You're the two that are going to have to push for things. Um, There are times that you may not agree with what your doctor is suggesting and that's okay. Um, You're supposed to be a partner. And if you don't feel like you're a partner with your healthcare provider, find a new healthcare provider. Um, I think we're all very hesitant to do that. We have this sort of, oh, we're supposed to respect our physicians and go with what they say. But we all know that like for this, I had far more knowledge about PGT than my, my healthcare provider at the time did. And it just gave this awareness of this is what patients go through on a daily basis. They're being led down paths that may not be correct. So advocate, educate, look for those really great resources. Like one that I share with patients all the time is Fertility IQ. The only issue with it now is it it has a paywall. Um, So you do have Mm -hmm. to pay for a subscription, but try to seek out those really great resources so that you are getting the information that you need and that you're making decisions based on everything. I think as genetic counselors in particular, we are very type A, we don't like to fail. Um, I think we need to reframe failure. It is okay to fail. It is okay to not get into grad school on the first try. It is okay to not pass your boards the first time because guess what? You can still be an amazing genetic counselor. It is okay to fail at your quote unquote career, right? I was on a very upward trajectory. I was, you know, an assistant professor. I was the boss in my group. And I said, you know what? I'm failing. I am not doing a job because my body does not want me to do this anymore. Mm -hmm. So I stepped down. I did not fail. I went a different direction. Um, we get fired. That's okay. <laughs> it's, um, and same thing with this. I failed at fertility, but I did not fail. Right. Like, but that's what your mindset says, right? I did all of this and I didn't get what I needed at the end. So I must be a failure. No life gets in the way. We have to change the endings, right? We all share that welcome to Holland story with our patients, right? You may not get the baby that you thought you were going to get, but it can still be beautiful. Well, why don't we apply that to other things? I didn't get the baby that I wanted, but my life is still beautiful. 
right? Mm -hmm. I still have amazing things in my life on a daily basis that I am thankful for with or without a child. Would it have been kind of fun to have a kid? Yeah. Would my husband have made a really amazing father? Of course, but he's still a great guy. He's like, I still get to enjoy him every day, you know? So the story um, still goes on. Exactly. And so Mm -hmm. it's okay to change your ending multiple times, right? We all had choose your, I'm old. So I had choose your adventure Mm -hmm. books. I loved it, right? You got to see how the different endings played out it's okay. Choose the adventure, right? And Mm -hmm. choose to stop. I, I could have kept going. I could have done more cycles. I totally could have, but my husband and I decided to collectively, no, it's killing us emotionally, physically, financially. Right. And at the end of the day, we still might not get that ending we're looking for. So let's modify our ending. Any, anything else I didn't ask you that you feel like you'd like Mm -hmm. to cover or share with the audience for the people around the person going through whatever the struggle is. Something that I noticed is when you're actively going through things, right? Your friends, and I know this is different with the pandemic, none of us got invited anywhere. Um, but with both the MSN with the fertility stuff, right? You, your friends invite you to things and you're gonna often say no, right? With MS, it was like, no, I'm, I'm so exhausted. I can't do that with the fertility. It's like, I may have just gotten bad news. And what I found over time is that people just stopped inviting me to things. People stopped asking me because they got tired of hearing no. They got tired of always hearing like, oh God, something else is going on. It was like, right. People didn't want to be around that. And so Mm -hmm. I get it. But my circle became smaller and smaller and smaller as things got harder and harder and harder. So one thing I would say for support people is don't leave. Don't stop inviting. You may get a no a hundred times, but that one time that you get a yes Oh my God. Like, it's so appreciated that I still got invited. Um, I don't think people realize that they think like, oh, she keeps saying no. So she obviously doesn't want to be involved. No, she's saying no, or he's saying no, because he can't be involved. You still want to feel part of the group. You still want to feel normal. Don't leave. Right. So (laughs) keep asking. Thank you so much for sharing so much of your story. And I know that there is a lot of genetic counselors out there um, that have picked up a ton of tips either that they can apply, you know, in a work setting or personally. So thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. That concludes this month's episode of the NSGC podcast series. This recording is produced by the National Society of Genetic Counselors. I'm your host, Naomi Wagner, and we'll see you next time.